One time, a Zen Buddhist master came to the United States to study Christianity. He was genuinely curious about Christian practices and theology, so he went to stay at a monastery in New England. After some weeks or months, learning about their way of life and worship and studying a Japanese Bible for a while, he offered to lead the monks in a retreat using Buddhist forms but adapting it to Christian thought. Now, in a Zen Buddhist retreat, the master gives each participant a koan. A koan is a kind of riddle, a question that requires a response, but not a logical answer. Instead, you live with the koan, day after day, until the moment of insight or enlightenment comes. So these Christian monks agreed to let the Zen master lead a retreat. The first monk came in for his interview and sat down across from the Zen master. The Zen master looked down at his Japanese Bible in front of him and then looked at the monk and smiled and said, you know, I like Christianity, but I wouldn't like it without the resurrection. And then he leaned forward so that his face was inches away from the monk and said, show me your resurrection. That is your koan. Show me your resurrection. I read that story over 30 years ago uh, in a book by Ernest Boyer, Finding God at Home, and it has stayed with me. Somehow, in his brief exposure to Christian faith, this Buddhist master discovered something a lot of us Christians seem to miss. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ never becomes our resurrection, if we are unable to show our resurrection to others, then what does resurrection really mean to us? What does the Christian faith mean to us? I think the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 is making precisely that point. Here is another beautiful text from Romans, the third one that we've looked at in the last three weeks. And as I said last Sunday, the first part of Romans 5, the passage about God loving us without condition while we were stuck in sin, is kind of a hinge a pivot point between the first four chapters which establish our need and our sin and the remainder of the book which calls us to a new way of living, new ethics. And the love of God is our pivot point. It's what enables us to acknowledge our need and our sin and then move forward to transformation and regeneration. So it makes sense that You have to read Romans all the way to chapter 6, verse 12, before you see the first imperative verb. Up to now, the verbs in Romans have been mostly descriptive. It's not until the end of today's reading that we get the first directive from Paul, as in, do this. But before that, in the first part of today's reading, Paul introduces this intimate connection between the death 
and resurrection of Christ and our own cycle of death and resurrection. So what's that about? I dare say that idea needed some explaining when it was first shared with the believers in Rome and around the scattered church. Yes, Jesus died and was raised. We get that. But we, the ones who remain, are trying our best to avoid death. Even if we accept that there is some resurrection eventually for us, we would still prefer to stay alive now and put our own death and resurrection as far in the future as possible. But again, Paul is teaching the church by way of metaphor. We need to be Christ-like, not only in behaving in ways that resemble the life of Christ, that are patterned after Jesus' life before the cross, we are also like Christ in his death. And we are like Christ in his resurrection. Paul says our former self, our sinful and egocentric self, our personal, private, and small self, that that self went to the cross with Jesus. And we who take on Christ in faith take on his crucifixion. Our small self dies, or more precisely, is absorbed, is absorbed by the eternal and universal self of Christ so that we identify with Christ in his death. Or in Paul's words, we are united with him in a death like his. And that union with Christ in death leads to union with Christ in resurrected life. Or as Paul put it, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is not a literal or physical statement. Our bodily self doesn't disappear or become irrelevant. It's a metaphor. Our union with Christ in death and resurrection opens us to our larger self, our truer self, the self God sees when God looks at us, the self God loves so dearly and unconditionally. No longer are we bound and held captive by the needs and agenda of our old small self. We are free in God's expansive love and grace. Or to use Paul's vocabulary, we are no longer enslaved to sin. We are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a descriptive statement, a fact, according to Paul. Disciples of Jesus are in this state of being, no longer bound, but free. And now, having established this core fact of the gospel, Paul uses his first imperative verb in Romans. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey their desires. (laughs) 
No longer present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. In other words, be true to who you are. Now, Christian ethics don't come out of nowhere. We don't experience new life just by following a set of abstract rules and principles that we memorize and try to put into practice. No, our ethics grow out of our identity. Doing emerges from being. So this all sounds good, but does it have real-world implications? We could all read Romans as an exercise in theological thought. And those who, like me, get, who get energized by theological th talk would consider it time well spent. After all, Romans is a long and deeply theological letter. So that's a legitimate way to read it. But we, this morning, have come together as a community in worship to do more than engage our minds in deep theological thought. We come in bodies, bodies that exist in the real world, as whole persons in dynamic relationship with each other and with our neighbors and strangers and adversaries. We come as persons that have meaningful work to do in the world, that require full engagement of mind and spirit and body and soul. We come to worship together to get realigned in our identity so that we can return to our everyday world with a clearer sense of purpose, empowered to be who God created us to be. So how will Romans 6 make a difference back in the world from which you came this morning at 9.30? It's a wild and perplexing world we live in and becoming more so every day. So how do we, we who see ourselves metaphorically, of course, as having died and been raised in Christ, go about living in such a world? How might we respond differently to the challenges and threats in our world today if we began each day with a reminder that we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection? I think, for one, we would live with more hope and with more determination and perseverance and grace and joy. There is no evil in this world that Jesus hasn't already seen. There's nothing that stands between the present disordered state of things in the world and the shalom that God desires for us that is any more daunting 
that the cross and the tomb was for Jesus. Jesus has been there. That journey ended in a resounding victory for God's agenda. And we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. It should show. It should be evidenced in how we live in this world. The Zen master was right. We should be showing our resurrection in our everyday lives. Others around us may very well lose themselves in a cycle of despair over the way things are. They may get stuck in a state of chronic inaction or may erupt in violent reaction. But we who know we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection have the resources to confront the evil with a steady and non-violent righteous anger that has marinated in God's unconditional love, we are able to live in hope and see beauty and feel joy and take decisive action in this world to move it closer to God's vision of shalom. When, by God's grace, we are able to do that, then we are showing our resurrection. If, when facing the global catastrophe of climate change, if we opt to make bold changes in our own carbon footprint and confront destructive and unjust systems, and dance and sing and praise God for the joy and the delight of the beauty that's still all around us, then we are showing our resurrection. If, when facing systemic racism, sexism, and other embedded oppression in our society, if we opt to not respond in kind to people who hurl hateful diatribes in the culture wars, but speak in tones of genuine love and compassion for all people and lean into both personal welcome and institutional inclusiveness and treasured treasure relationships with those who are different from us, then we are showing our resurrection. If, when facing the most contentious and hostile political season of our lives in the next couple of years, we opt to let conversations be shaped by our moral compass instead of by partisan talking points, and exhibit genuine respect and reverence for the other with a willingness to listen deeply to their hurts and fears and hopes, to carefully consider other points of view without distorting them to score a point, then we are showing our resurrection. There are, in fact, 
endless ways to show our resurrection. In the most ordinary and everyday interactions and in those life-altering events that come along only rarely. Our call from Romans 6, having died to sin and self, is to joyfully embrace resurrection. My sermon title, Embracing Resurrection, can be read two ways. You may have noticed. Embracing is a verb. Just as I've been using it, we can embrace, accept, include, incorporate resurrection. It can also be an adjective. We can describe resurrection as embracing, as something that wraps itself around us. We embrace resurrection as much as resurrection embraces us and includes us and becomes integral to who we are. May both be true in our lives and may it show. Let's read together the prayer of confession. God of rebirth and regeneration, we confess we often fail to fully embrace your resurrection or to let your resurrection embrace us. Forgive us. We need your embrace. Lower our defenses. Loosen our grip on what was. Release us from sin and from all that diminishes us. Prepare us for the transformation you want to work in us. Forgive us. We long for new life. The God of resurrection eagerly forgives us and invites us to make Christ's resurrection our own and to walk in the newness of life. May it be so.